Today we're going to be in Psalm 30. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 30. And I will actually read the entirety of the psalm and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Psalm 30, starting in verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive, and I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. God, I pray that that would be our prayer, that we would give thanks to you forever, that we would realize your, your splendor, your majesty, that we would just be in awe of who you are. God, help us to, to be in, in awe and amazement of your, your greatness, even this morning, God, that we would just be silenced by how incredible you are, how loving and gracious you are, and how undeserving we are. God, I pray, along with David, that you would be my helper. God, that as I open up your word and seek to uh, divide it correctly, that you would be with me, that you would help me. God, I thank you for your people who have a desire to, to hear and to understand your word, and I pray that you would give me the ability to bring it to them in a, a way that is in line with your truth. God, I pray that as we open up your word, you would open up our eyes and that we would be drawn closer to you this morning. pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I have it on good authority from Sam that we are officially in Christmas season. Um, two weeks in a row now. It, it's official because we're both after Thanksgiving and we're in December. And so it's officially Christmas season. And all week I've been seeing this word joy pop up because I'm preaching on joy this morning, but I've seen it in nativity sets, I've seen it in wreaths, I've heard songs, joy to the world, right? This concept of joy is just in our midst because we are in the midst of Christmas season. And there's even, tends to be at least around Christmas time, a, a general atmosphere of, of joy, that people are a little bit more joyous and um, jovial around Christmas time. <clears throat> and you and I, as, as Christians, we have an even greater understanding of what that joy is, don't we? We have a greater understanding and appreciation of, of the fact that we can have joy in Christ for those of us who truly are in Christ. <clears throat> and as I was approaching this text and this concept of joy, I was thinking back to uh, many sermons that I've heard that make a differentiation between joy and happiness making very clear to, to communicate that joy is not the same as happiness. I thought, okay, well, 
Um, I've, I've heard that before. I need to go to, uh, go to a dictionary. I need to break out my lexicon and see if I can get a good definition for what joy is since I've been told over and over again that it's not happiness. And so I broke out maybe half a dozen to a dozen lexicons looking at what is the definition for joy? How do we define joy if it's not happiness? And uh, really, it seemed to say, all of them seem to say, it's, it's pretty much happiness. Um, so let me read for you some of the, the definitions that I found, which really are more synonyms than definitions. Um, just compiling what I read from these lexicons, um, they would say that joy is a state of gladness, that it is great happiness, that it is to be merry, it is joyfulness, it is calm delight. So uh, I, I don't know how much weight we can really give to those people who say that there's a stark difference between joy and happiness, at least using the lexicon as our guide. However, we have scripture that we can use as our guide too. And uh, scripture is really amazing in the sense that there's this, uh, this writing style of parallelism where it uses two different words that really mean the same thing one after another. And so I want to read to you a couple of these parallelisms. Uh, let's read together from Psalm 5, verse 11. And it says there in Psalm 5, 11, that it says, Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And so we can see there that joy and, and gladness are really um, used in parallel there. They're used as the same word. A couple other examples, Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah praying to God, he says, your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. So there, joy and delight are used synonymously. Or Luke 1, 14, talking about the birth of John the Baptist, it says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And so joy and gladness and happiness really seem to be kind of parallel even within scripture. <clears throat> and so what I think people have been trying to convey in making a distinction between joy and happiness is the sentiment that we can be joyful without having <clears throat> a, an ear-to-ear -ear grin on our face, right? We're not always smiling. We're not always uh, whistling a tune when we're joyful. However, that's kind of the, the understanding that we have when we talk about be, people being happy. It's the, the affect that we have on our face, right? The um, somebody walking in a room, you can just tell right away that they are happy. And we can see in Scripture that that's not always the case either, that we can be happy or, or joyful and yet not be smiling from ear to ear, that we can have different emotions simultaneously because we are uh, crazy, complex beings, right? We can have uh, emotions that aren't always just um, monolithic. They're, they're different. Uh, here's an example in Matthew 28, 8. It says that they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and they ran to report to his disciples. So they're both fearful and joyful at the same time. Uh, again, Colossians 1.24 says, I rejoice as I suffer for you. So there, suffering and rejoicing uh, are paired together. And then, once again, going back to uh, our, our favorite book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.10 uh, says that we ourselves are servants of God as sorrowful and yet as always rejoicing. And so today I want to ask the question and approach this issue of how this can be, how we can be both joyful and fearful or joyful and sorrowful, how we can have joy even in the midst of suffering. Uh, it's a, a difficult thing to, to try to comprehend and I think we often stumble over this understanding that 
uh, we can have these different emotions that are working within us simultaneously. And first of all, I think that we have to establish that to know true joy, we must first be in Christ, right? We can know joy to some degree, to some extent, without being in Christ. But that, that true joy of salvation, of knowing what it is that, that our God has done for us, that can only be known fully by somebody who has experienced that love for themselves. However, this doesn't always guarantee that those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, are going to be joyful. We still have obstacles to living a joyful life, to having a, a happy response to God. These obstacles of uh, trial, like James might say, trial of various kinds that are constantly in our lives, uh, pain and sadness and sickness and, and death, we still have to struggle through these even as Christians, even as joyous Christians, we still have these obstacles in our lives, um, these things that will take a smile off of our face oftentimes. Uh, we still have to deal with hardships and, and worry and uncertainty and uh, financial difficulties, uh, confusion, and all these different emotions and, again, obstacles to our, our joy, these issues that come up in our life. We are not immune to them as Christians. We still have to deal with uh, all this kind of hard, sad stuff, even while we are seeking to maintain a, a joyful attitude toward our God. And so if, we, uh, if we're to have joy, even in the midst of sorrow, I want to kind of boil it down to this. It's really simple. We really need to have a, a proper perspective um, to have joy in the midst of sorrow. And I know that might seem like it's oversimplified, but uh, we, we have to have a, a proper perspective if we're to have joy. And I, I want to give you this up front. It's not something that I want to kind of hold back or hide or kind of build up to in the sermon. Uh, this is something that is really key to having joy in, in any situation, in any circumstance. It all comes down to having a proper perspective, uh, first of all, of God, and secondly, of, of sin, of where these obstacles originate from, where they come from. And so if we have a proper perspective of God, if we understand that God is absolutely set apart, that he is glorious, that he is wonderful, that he is unchanging in every way, if we understand that he is holy beyond any comprehension of holiness that we can come up with in our mind, and then we realize that even in his holiness, even in his absolute set-apart goodness and, and godness, he stepped into flesh. He took on flesh, and he stepped into his creation and not only did he do that, but he laid down his life willingly for us. That perspective of God will result in joy. If we have a proper perspective of these obstacles, the pain, the suffering, the hardship, the sickness, the death, the financial despair, all these things, if we have a proper understanding that those are a result not of God just pouring that out on us, but they're a result of living in a fallen world, right? We are the, the products of a sinful world. We are in Adam, and Adam sinned against a holy God. And even so, even throughout all that, God was exercising his perfect holy will, right? He did all things according to his perfect will, Ephesians 1.11. And even so, he did so for, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So even in the, the result of a sinful fallen world, we can see God's uh, providence, we can see God's love, his caring hand, and that he is ultimately working all things for our good. If we have this 
proper perspective that uh, we are, are loving God for, for who he is, not for what he can do for us, but for what he has already done for us at the cross. If we have this proper perspective that we are responding to him. First uh, John 4, 19 says that uh, we love God because he first loved us, right? We are responding to him. And our circumstances uh, really shouldn't have any any changing of they don't have any effect on who God is. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to have that perspective. We need to have that mindset that no matter what happens in our life, no matter what uh, trials or, or persecution or circumstances come along, God is the same and he will remain the same. And so uh, with that, I want to go back to our, our text in Psalm 30 verse 1 through 5. And I want to uh, look at some of the obstacles that, that David was facing in this psalm that he's uh, written down for us. And so we can notice uh, some of the obstacles. In verse 1, David mentions his enemies. He says, do not let my enemies rejoice over me. So he's concerned about his enemies. He's concerned about the, the safety of his life. In verse 2, he mentions illness or health. And then in verse 5, it seems as if he's referring to some kind of discipline or chastening that he's coming under from the Lord because he mentions the anger of God. For his anger is but for a moment. So these are some of the obstacles that David seems to be responding to, that he seems to at least be acknowledging in his life. And these are all legitimate struggles, legitimate hardships that will tempt us to respond to God without a, a joyful heart that will tempt us to uh, perhaps respond in anger or in self-righteousness, looking to ourselves rather than looking to God. These are obstacles that David faced in his life that we also face in our life. And we have to realize that we really ultimately have limited control over our circumstances, don't we? I mean, to a degree, we can control our circumstances a little bit, but ultimately... We are responsible not for our circumstances, but for our response to our circumstances, for how it is that we respond when we're faced with uh, various trials of, of many kinds, when we're faced with these obstacles of life, with these difficulties that, that tempt us to abandon our joyful response to a holy and a perfect God. And so we need to also realize that we have to have not only a proper perspective of, of who God is, a proper perspective of our sin and the source of our trials and obstacles within our lives. But we have to have a proper perspective of our own hearts, realizing that we ourselves are a product of the fall, that we are wicked by nature. We are children of wrath. We are enemies of God, that we are fallen in our, our full being, not just that we do bad things or we think bad thoughts, but even our, our feelings and our emotions are, are fallen. And our heart is wicked and depraved. And its natural disposition is to turn away from God rather than to turn to God. God has to draw us to himself. God has to change our hearts and give us a desire to, uh, to come to him. So we have to have a, a proper perspective of our hearts, realizing that the problem certainly isn't with God. It's not even with the, the obstacles. There have always been these, these trials that people have faced, and there will always be these trials that people face until Jesus comes and he uh, puts 
every enemy under his foot, we're going to have these trials within our lives. The problem really is our heart and the way that we respond to these trials. We need to make sure that we have a, a proper perspective of God, our obstacles, and of our heart. And we can tell from the text just by the way that David starts that he did have a, a proper understanding, at least at times, of God, his obstacles, and his heart. And we know that because of how he starts off this psalm. He says, I will extol you, O Lord. Now, that's not really a, a word that we use every week, right? To, to extol. It's not a word that I use every week. Uh, to extol means to have a, a high and honorable conception of God, to understand who God is and where he is. So even within the use of this word, we see that David has a, a proper perspective of God. It means to give utterance to him, to give praise to him. And he goes on, he says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. So we see here in these first few verses that David has a, a joy within his heart, a joy toward God, and this joy is based in what God has already done for him. He's, he's looking back and he's realizing that God has blessed him, that God has been there for him. And because of that, he will extol God. He will praise God for what God has already done, that God has proven himself faithful in the past. And we, I know that I fell in this regard uh, terribly. I think it's easy for us to look at sins of commission and to realize where we fall short. These sins that we actually commit to, to lie, to steal, to cheat, to have pride or hatred, unrighteous hatred in our heart. Uh, those are sins of commission, but sins of omission, things that we fail to do, like to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, how many people have done that this morning? Like all day, like none of us, right? That's a sin of omission, a sin that we fail to do. To love our neighbor as ourselves. that's a sin that we fail to do. And to remember God in his faithfulness, God in what he's done for us, in his provisions, in his blessings, in his goodness, that's something that we all too often fail to do, to remember who God is and what he has already done for us in the past. And I think we would do well to uh, develop some kind of means to help us remember these things, whether it's uh, journaling or uh, writing down memories to, again, recall the, the ways that God has blessed us. That would be good for us to do so that we don't fall into this, this trap, into really this sin of forgetting who God is and, and what God has done for us. David had an understanding of who God was, and he, he remembered who he was, that he, in his unchanging character, he had been there for him in the past and he would be there for him in the future. He was able to extol God. He was able to praise God for how he has blessed him. Uh, here in about a month, we're actually going to get into the life of David. We're going to study the life of David in depth, and I'm excited for that. But uh, even now, hopefully you can think back into your minds some of the stuff that David went through. David had been through quite a bit in his lifetime. Uh, he was protected by Michael, by his wife at one point, from uh, her father, from Saul. He was protected by uh, Jonathan. He was protected by um, uh, Ahimelech. Remember the priest? He stepped in and he rescued David. He was protected by the Philistines. He was later protected from the Philistines. David was protected from Absalom, his own son. David was protected by God in, in many various ways. And he's able to look back and say, okay, well, my God is faithful. He was faithful then. I can extol him. I can praise him. I can put my, my trust in him because of who he is. David was constantly reminding himself of who God was. He was uh, 
throughout the Psalms, calling out to him and uh, referring to him as his rock, as his fortress, as his redeemer, as his comforter. He was referring to God as his shield, his high tower, his strength, his deliverer. He had an understanding of who God was and what God has already done for him. Look with me at Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3, and how David refers to God. In Psalm 18, verse 1, David says, I love you. That's his heart showing, right? I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. David had an understanding of who God was. David had an understanding of the, the faithfulness and reliability and trustworthiness of God that he could go to him because he has proven himself faithful in the past. And here in verse 2, where David mentions his healing, he says, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. David was actually healed by the Lord. I think we have a God who healed back then. We still have a God who heals today. However, I don't think that he heals in the same way that we might expect him to heal, that we might desire for him to heal. Uh, though he heals, he doesn't necessarily heal through, through people as he once did. He doesn't heal in the same way that he did when he was uh, proving the, the apostolic authority of his apostles or of the, the prophets who came before. This isn't the, the regular expectation that we should have in a sinful fallen world for God to, to step in and to heal in the same way that he once did. And in fact, I think oftentimes when we're, we're praying for people, we will remember the need for healing. And I think that's good. I think it's good that we pray that God would heal people. However, I think we need to keep in mind uh, the e eternity in the light of our prayers, that there are greater and, and more important things than somebody's stubbed toe being killed, right? Not that God is unconcerned with our stubbed toe or with our, our health or our, our happiness. I think he's certainly concerned with those things. However, again, we should be praying in the light of eternity that through such trials, God would be glorified, that through somebody's sickness or um, their, their ailment, that they would be drawn to God, that he might open up their eyes, that their faith might be strengthened, that even in their suffering, they might be an example of godliness, what it means to suffer well. I think that we need to remember to pray, even in the light of eternity, even as we remember that God is a, a God of healing, that God is a God who hears and, and listens to our prayers. And we can see that even within the, the life of David. Yes, here in verse 2, he's referring to some kind of healing that he had from some sickness, from some illness or ailment. However, if you recall, David, he died being sick. So ultimately, he he died with this sickness that God allowed him to have, that he wasn't healed from. He died uh, being sick in his bed, unable to stay warm, just cold and shivering. And, and that's how the Lord let his servant, the, the great King David, uh, pass into eternity. Even though he was a, a man after God's own heart, even though he was the, the king of Israel, God allowed him to, to suffer that. Uh, that, uh, that trial within his life wasn't taken away from him. That healing wasn't removed. God, again, allowed him to, to undergo that and to do so for his glory. And we see several times throughout these verses that uh, David is pointing back to what God has already done, 
In verse 1, he says, you have healed me. Verse, or you have lifted me up, rather. Verse 2, he says, you have healed me. Verse 3, you have brought up my soul. You have kept me alive. So again, David's pointing back to, to what God has already done. And we see here in verses 3 and 4 that he's not just pointing back to how God has intervened in his life, but he's focusing specifically on how God has brought him to life, how God has given him salvation. David has joy in his salvation. He says in uh, verses 3 and 4, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive, that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. This, in verse 4, he's calling for those who are God's saints to sing along with him. And this is a, a song of praise that is, again, reserved for those who are his and his alone. Those who have understood and experienced and appreciate this uh, extra level of joy in their life. Right? Anybody can uh, experience joy in their life. It doesn't take a, a Christian to experience the joy of uh, holding a baby, right? Or the joy of a loved one, the joy of a, a good hamburger, right? You can have joy in life over many simple things, but to have joy in salvation, to know what Jesus has already done for us, that he has paid it all, that he has paid our fine, that we are alive and adopted in him, that takes the experience of a believer, doesn't it? And even the angels long to look into the salvation that we as believers get to experience. They, uh, they understand that this is a, a different, separate kind of joy, a special kind of joy for those who are in Christ. This is a, a song reserved for those who are his. I have a, a quote here that I typed in this morning, and I'm not sure how it's going to come up on the screen. From oh, I actually didn't even put it over in the right spot for up on the screen, so I'll just read it to you. This is from C.H. Spurgeon. He says, Grace has lifted us from the pit of hell, from the ditch of sin, from the slough of despond, from the bed of sickness, from the bondage of doubts and fears. Have we no song to offer for all this? How high has our Lord lifted us? Lifted us up into the children's place to be adopted into the family. Lifted us up into union with Christ to sit together with him in heavenly places Lift high the name of our God, for he has lifted us up above the stars. I love the way that he, he puts that, just reminding us of who we are, who we were in, in Adam, and who we are in Christ. Again, having a proper perspective of God, a proper perspective of our hearts, our fallen sinful hearts, and realizing the, the, the difference of being in favor with God, to be taken out of this kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his marvelous son, if we have that as our perspective, that will uh, shape our attitude towards him. That will shape our joy in life, even in the midst of sorrow and trials and suffering. And the world would have us respond to all of our, our trials and our suffering, uh, not in joy, right? But they would have us respond in, in self-pity, perhaps, to, to feel bad for ourselves, to look at ourselves as, as victims, to call for justice to be done on our behalf by the world, that, that somebody else needs to step in and, and fix our problems. This isn't something that we deserve, this persecution, these hardships. Uh, we, are, we are victims, right? That's what the world would have us to say. Or perhaps even they would go so far as to say, and I know they do go so far as to say, there can't even be a God, right? Because there's, there's sin and there's suffering and there's pain in this world. How could there be a God who allows that kind of thing to to carry on. There, there can't even be a God, or if there is a God, he couldn't 
actually love you because of uh, all these hardships that you're going through, all these obstacles to your joy. That was, that's the world's response. But God would have us respond in, uh, in rejoicing, even to our, our trials and our sufferings. Uh, let's look together at this popular verse in James, James 1, verse 2. James 1, 2 says, tells us to consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What a, what a concept. What a hard thing to wrap our minds around, that we're to respond to trials in joy. Well, he goes on in a few verses, and he says in verse 5 that if any of us lacks wisdom, well, wisdom about what? In, in the context, wisdom about how we're to do this, how we're to respond to hardships and trials and suffering with joy. If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a, a promise that we have in Scripture that God will give us the wisdom to understand what it means to respond to trials in joy. I know that that's a, a kind of twisted backwards thought in our, our fallen minds, right? How do we respond to to trials, to hardship, with joy. James says, seek God and, and ask for wisdom, and he'll give you that understanding. And again, going back to what I said previously, I think it really all starts with having a, a proper perspective, uh, having our, our hearts set on God rather than on ourselves. So we've seen in the first couple of verses that David is able to have a joyous heart because of what God has already done for him. We saw that David is able to have a, a joyful heart because of how God has saved him, what he has saved him from. And we see in verse 5 that uh, he has joy in what we are saved to, that we are saved to something, not just from something, but to something. It says in verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. That's a beautiful thought. Weeping just for a moment, but joy comes in the morning. A shout of joy comes in the morning. So we are not only saved from our, our sin, we're not only saved from hell if we are in Christ, but we are saved to a, a living hope, right? First Peter says that we have in Christ a, a living hope and a sure salvation in him, that we have the, the hope of tomorrow. We have the hope of a future with our Lord. Romans 8.18 says, for I consider, Paul talking, for I consider the sufferings of this present life, this present time, they are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the end. So whatever trials or, or troubles, tribulation you're going through, no matter how bad it is, he says it's not even worthy of, of comparing it. He's not even going to try to make that comparison. Um, you could think about comparisons that he might be willing to make or, or you know, seek to employ, well, comparing, oh, our, our sufferings, if they're only a little grasshopper, if they're only a little ant, then the joy in heaven might be a, an elephant or a whale. He says, no, I'm not even going to do that. I'm not even going to go there because it's unworthy to even compare them. They're without comparison whatsoever. Um, Jesus in John 16, let's look at this for a moment. In John 16, verse 20, Jesus is approaching his disciples shortly before his, his death. And he says in John 16, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Again, only for a moment. In 21, he goes on and says, Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. 
But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that the child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take you away. No one will take your joy away from you. So just as a, a woman is in labor and, and having all that uh, not fun time, right? <laughs> uh, all that agony and pain, uh, so I hear. Um, later on, she forgets about it entirely, right? Because she's able to hold the baby and experience the joy of the baby. A couple chapters before this, Jesus says, um, I, I didn't leave you guys as orphans. I'm going to, to prepare a place for you. And that's the joy that Jesus is pointing them to. I'm, I'm coming back for you guys. So no matter how grievous, no matter how painful your situations, your circumstances might be, uh, realize that it's just for a moment, right? Which is exactly what Paul said, again, 2 Corinthians, our, our favorite book, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond, again, all comparison, not even worthy to compare it to. Look not at the things that are temporal, but at the things which are eternal. We have to have this, this right mindset, this proper perspective of how God is, he's not just leaving us. He hasn't abandoned us. We're not orphans. He is preparing a place for us. And just like David, we can have joy not only in what Christ has done for us, not only in the salvation that we have and, and what we have been saved from, but what we are saved to that we have an eternal way of glory to, to look forward to in the future. We have life in Christ, eternal life in Christ. Well, let's... I need to flip back to Psalm 30. Let's continue reading in Psalm 30, verses 6 through 9. We see here uh, a kind of different mindset. I think this actually took place before verses 1 through 5. And we see here David admitting his own feebleness. He's, he's getting real with us here. He says in verse 6, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. That's, that's kind of proud, right? And he's admitting that openly. He says, O oh Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O oh Lord, I call, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? So I, I really love the honesty of the Psalms. I love the honesty of David in the Psalms and how he just cries out and can see, okay, well, that, that probably wasn't a good thing to say. That probably wasn't a right thing to say. And yet, David uh, shares it with us. He shares with us the fact that he was standing in his own self-righteousness. He was standing at times in his own pride, trusting in himself. I want to read to you again verses 6 and 7, but from the NIV this time. I really like how the NIV puts it. It says in verse 6, When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Again, how prideful. He felt secure because of where God had put him. And he said, I'm not going to be shaken. Verse 7, Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. So at, at times he's willing to, to praise God. And then at other times he's standing in his own self-righteousness or he's asking, well, where God, where's God at now? What's going on now when, when I'm in this, this trial and this hardship? Uh, we sing a song here, as long as you are glorified, right? You guys remember that song? Uh, I really think that this is, kind of reminiscent of the attitude that David had. It says a couple of lines within that song, Shall I take from your hand your blessings, yet not welcome any pain? 
Shall I thank you for days of sunshine, yet grumble in days of rain? Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust you when I reap a harvest, but when winter wind blows, then doubt? I think, again, that's not only reminiscent of David's attitude in the psalm, but I think that can be reminiscent of us, that when things are going well, we can praise God, and then when things are uh, difficult, when we're going through a trial, when things are rough, we can wonder, okay, well, where's God at? What's going on now? Uh, we can be like Job's wife, who says, and telling Job, just curse God and die. Turn away from God because things aren't going for you well. Uh, and Job had to rebuke her and say, well, who am I to, to thank God for his blessings and then run away from him when things aren't going my way? Realizing, again, he, Job, having a proper perspective of the fact that God is God and he is not. I think that's really where it all comes down to, this proper perspective that we need to have of who God is. Uh, David here, again, sharing the fact that he is uh, self-reliant, that he's dependent upon himself. He's, he has this mentality, this understanding of he's going to pull himself up by his bootstraps. And that's what he's sharing with us here in these verses. Uh, and yeah, even uh, in verse 9, we can see that David does personally know God's goodness, that he can testify and proclaim of his mercy, that he's been the recipient of his faithfulness and he is going to praise God for it. He's going to proclaim God's goodness. Like, just like he started off the psalm saying, I will extol you. Again, I think verses 1 through 5 are kind of the response of uh, verses 6 through 9 here, that David developed a proper understanding of God, of sin, of his own wicked heart. Verse 10 here says, Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. I, I love that verse. That's, again, just so honest. Um, David just having this, he, he's portrayed me anyway as just a child, just, God, I need your help. Please be my helper, right? Calling out to God for help. And God forbid that we would ever approach him in any kind of self-righteousness, thinking that we've got things all together. And God is opposed to the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. It's the meek who inherit the earth. God has a, a love for the humble. He wants us to approach him in absolute humility. This should be the, the melody of our heart, that we are humble before God, realizing that we are in need of him. Um, I love that, that other song, Come Thou Fount, which says that it says, tune my heart to sing thy praise. That's our need because our hearts aren't naturally tuned to sing his praise, are they? Again, we have to have a proper perspective of our heart that our heart is fallen, our heart is deceived, our heart is turned away from God. So we need to pray, call out to him that he would tune our hearts to sing his praise, that he would change our hearts and that we would be born again to a living hope and a sure salvation. That's something that has to be done to us. That's a, a passive action that we are born again. That's not something we do in and of ourselves. In Romans chapter 12, again, another popular verse, Romans 12, 2, we see um, this same concept that we need the help of our Lord. It says, Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed um, passively by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. 
God has to change our hearts. God has to draw us to himself. We ought not to be too bold to uh, presume upon our position in Christ as David did when he said in his prosperity, I will never be moved. That's just proud foolishness. A couple of Psalms earlier, in Psalm 25, verses 16 through 18, uh, David prays, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Again, looking to God. God, please bring me out of my distresses. Not I'm going to bring myself out, but bring me out of my distresses. And look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. God, or David there realizing his need for God to step in and to do a work within his heart, within his life. Um, Looking back a little bit, again, in verse 5, I think we see the results of um, this kind of attitude that David had, this prideful, I'm going to stand in this position, I kind of brought myself here, this Nebuchadnezzar type of attitude of look at the kingdom that I built. Uh, This results in... uh, some chastening and some, um, some punishment from God. And so he references the anger of God. And I want to share with you uh, a verse that I recently came across that I thought was really cool, talking about how God uses his judgment to bring us to repentance, which isn't something that we often think about, but that is the, the purpose for the judgment of God, to draw us to himself, to draw us to this point of repentance. In Isaiah 26 verses 9 and 10. It says, at night my soul longs for you. That, that's good, right? Isaiah there has a, a right perspective of God. He has a heart that is tuned towards God. He says uh, that his soul longs for God. Indeed, his spirit within him seeks for God diligently. He says, for when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. What a concept that God judges the world and the inhabitants learn righteousness. That's the, the goal, at least, right? That's um, what should be the desired outcome, to learn righteousness from God's judgments. And then he goes on, he contrasts that. He says, though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. And so even when we're faced with uh, situations that we bring about ourselves, perhaps, these... Um, responses that God has in his, his judgment, in his discipline, in his chastening, uh, we have a, a choice. We can respond in, in righteousness, we can respond by repentance, or we can respond as others did, not perceiving the majesty of the Lord. It's all in our, our response to the trials that we face and response to the persecutions that God allows to come into our lives. It all has to deal with our attitude. And I think we see in these last few verses of Psalm 30 that uh, we need to have a change not ultimately in our circumstance, but in our perspective. And I think even within David's situation here in Psalm 30, that's what's going on, a, a change in his perspective. It says in verses 11 and 12, You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I don't think that, that, again, God is unable to change our circumstances. And I think there were times within David's life where God did change his circumstances. But I think ultimately what David is looking to is a change in his perspective, 
a change in his understanding of what God is doing and his response of what God is doing within his life. Uh, joy shouldn't be contingent upon our circumstances. We can be, even in the midst of, of sorrow, in the midst of trials, we can respond to God with rejoicing. We can respond to God with praise, even as, as David did. Uh, remember who we're talking about here. David had uh, many problems, continual problems all throughout his life. Uh, he wasn't just raptured up and, and taken glory like uh, Enoch or Elisha, um, but he was allowed to, to go through these trials, to go through these circumstances, even, even as we looked at recently um, in Second Corinthians, that Paul uh, had this thorn in the flesh and God allowed it to stay there. And he told him, no, my, my grace is sufficient for you. Even after Paul prayed three times, take this away from me, God said, no, you're, you're going to live with that. And you're going to see my, my grace perhaps in a way that you wouldn't have seen otherwise because you're going to have this, this trial. You're going to have this thorn in the flesh that I'm going to leave with you. And David was the, the king of a nation, not just any nation. He was a king of Israel, right, who's constantly getting themselves into trouble. They're constantly turning their back on God and, and chasing after idols and uh, just being foolish in the way they respond to God. He had endless family problems. He had multiple wives. Uh, David had no lack of trouble within his life. Some brought about by himself and some not. Um, the, the health issues that we mentioned, even up until his death. So I don't think that David was ever in a, a situation where he didn't have trials within his life, but God gave him a, a change of perspective. He gave him a change of heart so that even in the midst of struggle, David was able to, to dance before the Lord. He was able to dance physically, like we see in Second Samuel 6, but he was able to dance even uh, metaphorically, that he had this, this joy before God. Uh, as it says in, in our text, he was clothed with joy. What great imagery that David, even in the midst of his trials, even in the midst of uh, struggling with his, his enemies, with illness, with chastening from God, he was able to be clothed with joy. And uh, we should realize that this isn't, you know, joy that's coming after pain, joy that's coming after suffering, but it's joy that's coming in the midst of suffering because he has a, a proper perspective of who God is. Uh, I want to go to, to one more place and, and share another example of this with you. In Acts chapter 16, we see Paul and Silas having the same response. Even in the midst of a trial, they're able to respond in joy. In Acts 16.22, it says that the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to, to order them to be beaten with rods. 23, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison. So they're being beaten, struck with many blows, thrown into prison, and he commanded the jailer to guard them securely. And then verse 24 says, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. That seems like a pretty crummy situation, right? But in verse 25, they respond by singing praise to God. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They responded by praising God, even when they were beaten, even when they were thrown into prison, mistreated. Uh, we, again, see the same thing with Job all throughout Job's life. He, or maybe not all throughout, but all throughout the book of Job, right? He's responding um, not by cursing God, even when he's told by his wife, curse God and die. Uh, Stephen, when he's being stoned, he's looking up and he's seeing Jesus, and he is... Uh, not responding 
as the world would have him to respond. Um, this past week, I just finished a biography about John Huss. Uh, came some hundred years before the reformers. He was a, a proto-reformer, you might say. And as he was being put to death, as he was being burned to death at the stake, he was singing out to God for as long as he, his body would allow him to sing. He was responding to trials, to persecution, with joy, with rejoicing. And that's exactly what we're called to do. Even in the midst of trials, we should respond in joy. And I just want to close by giving some, a, a summary and some application of how we might do that. Again, we need to, to have our, our perspective changed to realize that, that God is different. God is unique. God is set apart. He is holy and just. Um, and all of our, our troubles, all of our obstacles to an attitude of joy, they are the result of a, a fallen world, that we live in a, a fallen world. And again, I don't want to, to oversimplify this. I don't want to in any way diminish whatever suffering you might be going through um, by making it simple. But we cannot diminish the, the value of the cross and what Christ has done for us on the cross and how he has uh, stepped into a broken world and he has laid down his life for us. That should give us all the joy in the world because of the, the joy that we have in Christ, what he has done for us. We, we all have problems, right? Trials are unavoidable in this world. You are either coming out of a trial or in the midst of a trial or about to head into a trial. It's inevitable for everybody. And we are much better off if we have a, a proper perspective of who God is and who we are prior to entering that trial. But even if we are in the midst of that trial, we need to remember it's never too late to call out to God and to pray to him that he would tune our hearts to sing his praise. It's never too late to, to call out to him and to realize that we really do have a, a heart issue. Our perspective needs to change in regard to our heart, realizing that uh, our struggle is even within us. And I know that the, the Sunday school answer can be kind of simplified, right? That, well, we really just need to read our Bible and pray every day, pray every day, pray every day, and, and grow, 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 right? Just uh, pray and, and read our Bible and go to church. But that cliche answer is cliche because it's, it's true. That's what we need to do, right? We need to call out to God. Like we see David calling out to God in the Psalms. God is, is there for us. He wants relationship with us. He wants to commune with us through prayer. We need to utilize the, the power of prayer, crying out to God, being real with Him, uh, casting our burdens upon Him, realizing that His yoke is easy, His burden is light, and He's able to, to bear our, our struggles. We need to take our struggles before Him. And uh, praying is just talking to God, right? That's, that's all it is. It's simple. Anybody can do it. However, I think we're much better off if we're doing more listening than talking when it comes to God. Uh, prayer is good but we need to be in his word. We need to be reading what he has said to us, what he has communicated to us. And the Psalms are a beautiful place to do that. If you're, you're struggling right now, if you're going through some kind of uh, trial that is trying to choke out your joy, uh, read through the Psalms. And realize that you're not alone, that, that David was there. Many others were there in uh, just sadness and lament. You can read through Lamentations from Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and realize, man, that, Life isn't easy, and, and I'm not the only one. But don't, don't stay there. Uh, most of the Psalms end in, in triumph, end in rejoicing, realizing that God is greater, that God is a, a God of deliverance. 
uh, Philippians is the epistle of joy. Read through Philippians and just realize that we have so much joy in Christ that being in Christ gives us uh, opportunity to, to rejoice uh, because we have been, been changed. We have been made new by him. And uh, so, yes, pray. Yes, read your Bible. And yes, go to church, right? Simple. Um, because if you are struggling with, with happiness, with uh, joy, the worst thing you can do is, is isolate. I know that it, we can be tempted when life is hard, when we're struggling. We just want to be alone. We don't want to be around anybody. Um, that's not God's design for us to isolate. God has designed his church to be unified, to come together, not just on, on Sunday morning, right? But throughout the week, we need to be leaning on one another. We need to be bearing the burdens of one another, weeping with those who weep, uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice, we are called to suffer together. We are called to encourage one another, realizing that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle and we need to do this together with a, a proper perspective that is focused on God and our, our need for one another for those of us who are in Christ. Let's pray. God, I do want to come to you and, and just realize that we are, are humans, that we live in a, a broken world and that we have no lack of suffering, no lack of trials or, or obstacles to having a, a joyful heart in you. God, I pray that you would fix our heart on you, that you would tune our heart to sing your praise, that we would be uh, enamored with who you are. And even when life is difficult, that that wouldn't uh, shadow, that wouldn't be a, a shadow over our uh, understanding of who you are. God, we want to please you and, and all that we do. Help us to, to love one another. Help us to be a, a church and a community that is known for our rejoicing in a God who saves, a God who is worthy of our praise. God, we praise you. We love you. We uh, pray that you would be with us this week as we go and rejoice in who we are in you. Amen.